0: Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 21st. In today's news, the Pentagon reveals that the Ukrainians were asking about the frozen military aid weeks earlier than previously known. At a debate, Joe Biden says Democrats should not chant lock him up. And one of Trump's healthcare advisors spent more than $3 million of taxpayer money on image consultants to boost her brand. First, though, the big idea. The hearing room on Capitol Hill was packed and abuzz with speculation about what Gordon Sundland might say. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, staffers in the West Wing were glued to televisions, since the ambassador to the European Union had refused to share his testimony in advance. President Trump grabbed a pad and a sharpie to take notes, unsure if Sondland would turn out to be his presidency's biggest danger or best defense. The towering hotel magnate from Portland, Oregon, walked in, raised his right hand, and began by stressing that he was appearing before the impeachment hearing against the advice of the White House. But as Sunderland warmed up, sometimes smirking, joking, and announcing casually that, yes, there had indeed been a quid pro quo, it soon wasn't clear what gravity he saw in the moment. The political mega donor turned ambassador was almost nonchalant as he implicated the president and his top advisors, including the vice president, the secretary of state, and the acting White House chief of staff in a scheme, even a conspiracy, to coerce Ukraine. Sondland agreed amiably with Democrats that it was wrong for Trump to use his office to go after political opponents. He shrugged off denials from cabinet officials he named as they were read into the record by fuming Republican lawmakers. There was no somber rhetoric. He didn't talk about some kind of cancer on the presidency the way John Dean did when he flipped on Richard Nixon. But rather, Sunderland spoke of Trump as a transactional businessman. The president wanted certain things from Ukraine, and vice versa. Sondland said he, too, a businessman, was just trying to fix some things for his boss that the president wanted fixed. He recounted, without a hint of remorse, using his perch as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union to pressure a foreign government to pursue investigations sought by the sitting U.S. president. Sondland also acknowledged reversing the testimony he gave under oath to Congress last month, chalking it up to a busy schedule that makes it hard to remember details. He said he simply forgot that he told a top Ukrainian official in September that the country needed to announce the investigations to see U.S. security assistance flow again. Still, since he had and was having to answer for it, there was nothing wrong with doing so, Sondland said. By the end of his seven-hour testimony, Sondland emerged as a provocative but bewildering witness for the Democrats, someone who affirmed their assertion that Ukraine policy was driven by Trump's insistence that the country launch investigations into his political rivals, but who expressed none of their outrage. At some points, he even appeared to be having a good time. Asked about a phone call in which he was overheard giving Trump an encouraging report about the pressure campaign, Sundland seemed amused when read back an account of having told Trump that the president of Ukraine loves your, and then another word for behind. Sondland said it sounds like something he would say, adding that he and the president communicate in quote, a lot of four letter words told by a democratic congressman that another impeachment witness the day before Tim Morrison had referred to him as the quote Gordon problem. The hearing room roared with laughter when Sondland responded that that's what his wife calls him too. Sondland repeatedly said that when actions didn't add up, such as when a freeze was placed on U.S. military assistance without any official explanation, he presumed that the White House was leveraging the funds to get the investigations Trump wanted. Republicans used their time to try to poke holes in that claim. While he said it was abundantly clear to everyone that there was a link between the aid and the investigations, Sondland did acknowledge that Trump never told him directly that the aid was conditioned on looking into Joe Biden. Sundlin said, Everyone was in the loop, though, and it was a poorly kept secret, if a secret at all. He also said he can only offer limited documentation to back up his sweeping assertions because he doesn't take or keep notes. And he said the State Department refused to allow him to access his emails, calendars, and text messages that would have let him recreate the meetings. Sunderland said he spoke directly with Trump himself about 20 times, but he said he can't remember any details for most of those conversations. Republicans took turns reading statements issued by Energy Secretary Rick Perry and Vice President Pence, challenging Sunland's testimony in near real time. The ambassador sat still, smiling slightly, seemingly unfazed. Last month, Trump effusively praised Sunland as a, quote, great American, when the ambassador defended him and said he did nothing wrong. Yesterday, the president told reporters, quote, This is not a man I know well. Asked about this? Sundland seemed unperturbed. He chuckled. Easy come, he said. Easy go. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Laura Cooper, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia and Ukraine, amended her testimony last night during the second part of the hearing before the Intelligence Committee. She says that her staff alerted her after the first deposition that she gave a few weeks ago, that they in fact did receive an inquiry from the Ukrainian embassy about the status of the military aid that had been frozen by Trump. The call from the Ukrainian embassy came on July 25th, just hours after the president's call with Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. The new timeline that Cooper laid out threatens one of the GOP's core defenses of Trump, that the Ukrainians weren't aware there was a hold on security aid at the time of the call between the two presidents, and that they therefore couldn't have been coerced. This suggests that they were well aware the money was being held up, and they were worried about it. Now, the White House responded to this revelation by saying that just because the Ukrainians asked about the money doesn't mean they knew Trump himself had ordered the freeze, or that he was doing so to get them to investigate Biden. But Cooper said this kind of request for information from the Ukrainian embassy was highly unusual. Number two, speaking of Biden, the 10 leading Democratic presidential candidates met in Atlanta last night for a debate sponsored by The Washington Post and MSNBC. The candidates united around two ideas in a mostly civil two hour exchange that Trump must be defeated at the ballot box next November, and that they're each best positioned to do it. Ideological divides remain, and policy differences persist but they no longer serve as ends in themselves, as the real topic of debate has begun to shift with just 75 days until the Iowa caucuses. The candidates focused instead on the unabated fear of Trump's re-election, amid fresh polling showing the president continues to have an edge in key Midwestern battleground states, including Wisconsin, despite the daily drip of damaging revelations as part of the impeachment probe. Biden chided his party during the debate for the chants that had been breaking out at some Democratic events while attendees have started yelling, lock him up. It's a play on lock her up that Trump encouraged against Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign, and which still continues at some of the president's rallies. Biden says that's wrong, that Democrats shouldn't be doing things like that. He called for civility and said Democrats shouldn't disregard the rule of law just because Trump did. But Bernie Sanders pointedly declined to criticize the lock him up chance, and the other candidates didn't weigh in directly. Biden said emphatically that he would not order his Justice Department to prosecute Trump, but he held out the possibility that it could do so if the attorney general he appoints thinks independently that it's warranted, but he said he'll stay out of it. Elizabeth Warren said she would never appoint a campaign donor to become an ambassador, the way Sunland did, and she chastised her rivals for not joining her in making that pledge. Amy Klobuchar, one of the other female candidates still on the debate stage, argued that the candidates shouldn't be judged by physical characteristics, but by their competency and smarts. She said, quote, if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. Number three, there are a lot of things happening in the Trump administration literally every day. that would almost certainly be huge scandals if they happened under past presidents, whether Barack Obama or George Bush. To wit, Seema Verma, Trump's top appointee overseeing health insurance for the elderly and poor spent $3.3 million of taxpayer money to hire a stable of high-priced GOP image consultants. They tried to get magazines like Glamour to profile her and encouraged her to go to social events like the Kennedy Center Honors to boost her personal brand. Earlier this year, one of the outside consultants for Verma, who directs the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, sent an eight-page month-by-month blueprint to have Verma grant interviews to Women's Day and other magazines, to speak at prominent conferences, and to appear at Washington social events, including a list of them. That consultant, Pam Stevens, charged the government $310 an hour for her work. $310 an hour. What's amazing is that millions were being shelled out for this kind of advice as Verma spoke publicly about the importance of fostering self-reliance among the nation's neediest and championed work requirements that could literally take away health coverage for millions of the poorest Americans who are struggling to get by. Verma has forged a far more partisan and outspoken brand for herself than her predecessors. Typically, CMS administrators are visible on Capitol Hill, but focus on wonkish details of public insurance programs. But Verma is highly ambitious, and she wants to make a name for herself. That's how she ended up using your tax dollars to hire at least two dozen strategic communications consultants. These GOP apparatchiks formed an extra-governmental team that guided Verma, oversaw some decisions by career staffers, and attempted to elevate her profile in ways that ethics experts say go beyond what federal consultants not just are usually hired to do, but possibly beyond what federal contracting law allows. HHS ordered an end to the contract when Politico started asking questions about it back in April. Afterward, Verma apparently told multiple people that she wanted the contract restarted. Now, HHS's Inspector General is conducting a review of the contracts and the role of the contractors. The IG spokeswoman said they expect to finish a report by early next year. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow.